This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena, no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo irarangi onatangata o Manawatu. It is a Friday morning. The weekend is almost here, uh, and given that we are in level two, albeit level two plus, I think people are more familiar with what day of the week it is now, and will be perhaps looking forward uh, to the weekend. Uh, just a quick look at the numbers. As at nine a.m. yesterday, there were eighteen new cases within the past twenty-four hours. Uh, that means that the total number of active cases are 625 with 22 at the border and 603 in the community. I remember that being in the 700s only a couple of days ago, so it's good to see that number coming down. 32% of the eligible population are fully vaccinated in New Zealand and 62.5% of the eligible population have had at least one dose. So uh, that looks like we're going to be getting at least two-thirds of the population as we stand at the moment fully vaccinated and within the next few weeks and I'm sure uh, wanting to celebrate that fact but also hope for a higher number. We have MP for Palmerston North uh, Tangi Utikeri uh, live via Zoom this morning. Good morning to you. Morena Fraser, morning to the listeners on what is a pretty windy day out there uh, in, in, here in Palmy and obviously overnight as well but yes just to reflect on those updated steps that you've just provided there, Fraser. Delighted that we're heading in the right direction. Um, you know, as a government and locally, we've always said that we have to get those vaccination numbers up and to now hit that where nearly two-thirds of the population uh, have received uh, at least one dose of the vaccine is, is really splendid news. And uh, thanks to Spain and one other mysterious country that we'll hear about in due course, we've got all the uh, doses that we could possibly need until our big shipment in October, I understand. Yeah, that's correct. And I know that, you know, there was um, a little bit of chatter about well, who these uh, mysterious countries uh, were. The reality is that they were subject to contractual obligations between that country and the New Zealand government. Um, but it's it's really pleasing to hear the Prime Minister this week announce, uh, you know, confirmation. And, and we all know that that first batch from uh, Spain will be arriving in New Zealand this morning. Does this not beg the question, though, have some perhaps more affluent or or more accessible countries been overbuying and stockpiling the vaccine, which doesn't seem very fair, particularly as we've heard in the news to perhaps uh, poorer countries or third world countries that are desperately trying to roll this out as well? Yeah, look, I think it's certainly over to each country to um, put in place a plan for their population. Our plan was one where we focused on uh, 2021 as the year of the vaccine. Uh, This additional supply from Spain and from another country yet to be announced uh, is to supplement the the huge level of demand. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, New Zealand has always said that we see we have a responsibility to our Pacific neighbours and we've, we've acted on that. Um, but the responsibility of other countries in terms of 
um, you know, how much stock they order, uh, the responsibility that they see for other countries nearby or or, um, or like-minded as over to them. But, you know, the, the reason why we've got this uh, additional supply that's come in is to meet the uh, supplemented demand that people want to get the, the vaccine. Um, and we're, we're delighted that that's, that's the case. Uh, I alluded at the uh, beginning of this that we are in level two plus, level two delta, level two with masks, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's different than last time round, which I think everyone expected there would be some differences. Um, but I mean, everything seems contained in Auckland. There would a, there is an assumption and an optimism that the rest of the country uh, could move to level one fairly quickly, but there does seem to be a narrative, um, Michael Baker has, has been uh, saying this as well, very unlikely for us to move to level one until uh, we stop seeing any form of community transmission in Auckland, which is going to, I suspect, um, get, get the South Island particularly peeved? Well, I think what's what's heartening is that those numbers in Auckland are continuing to go down. Um, and, you know, earlier this week, as a member of Parliament's Health Select Committee, we had some of the uh, modelers, although I think that some of them preferred to call themselves analysts rather than modelers, um, talk about what that graph might look like. Um, and also what the alternatives would be if, if we didn't go down into lockdown. And actually the, the, the phrase or the comment that was made that if we didn't go into lockdown at the time that we did, uh, this is the week based on the modelling or the analysis that um, New Zealand's health system would be really uh, suffering and under strain. So, you know, I, I hear that there are people who are making uh, comments about what the future might look like. I am pretty certain that all of that will form part and parcel of what's considered by the government. I mean, you know, the, the fact that you've referred yourself to a, a level 2 plus, a level 2D, delta, whatever you might call it, um, is actually an indication that we simply didn't just go back to what was already in place, that this is an evolving situation that, you know, there needs to be some flexibility um, and that a number of options are on the cards. Um, so, and, and I have faith in, uh, you know, the, the certainly the Director General of Health, um, and the public health officials to be giving the government all of that advice so that it's good decisions that can be taken. Because, the, the, I mean, the issue here is that the border, uh, whilst a fairly hard one, uh, A, cuts off Northland. Uh, Air New Zealand announced a, a flight to get people out of Northland and into the rest of the country because they can't do it any other way. But also there's a lot of people travelling for essential purposes and I say that slightly in air quotes because you're allowing people to traverse the border for weddings tangihanga uh, those sorts of things as well but the testing isn't in place to keep up with this and make sure that these people that are traversing the border are COVID free so it's not as hard a border and that might limit the ability for Auckland to be contained and get on top of it as quickly as the rest of the country would like them to so we can descend an alert level as well. Well, I think, you know, you're right in the sense that those in Northland and my colleagues in Northland, you know, have been in communication with the rest of the the Labour caucus around, you know, how things are going up there. And I did see that in New Zealand announced a one daily return service from Kirikiri to um, Wellington, I think, yesterday or thereabouts. Um, but what we are seeing is uh, things that have been put in place to uh, allow for movement, but in a way that the public health advice, as it currently stands, uh, deems that as, as appropriate and safe. 
Um, and I get that there will be different views around that from different people. Um, and I get that there are views around, well, what's the extent of testing and, and the rapid nature of testing and that should be rolled out and, you know, why hasn't it and what have you. Um, I, I know that some people might not think that, you know, um, these decisions are, are well-timed or, or, or are more suitable or more uh, protective, but they are based on the advice that's given. And I get that you can get a whole range of advice from different people. And certainly in the Health Select Committee, you know, listening to the analysts and the modelers, there are different perspectives on things. Um, but I, I do rely on that advice that's been given. But it's not relying on that advice because the advice is that you need to prove that you've had a test. But the police aren't checking for that evidence until I think it's today, actually. Uh, but they haven't been because the infrastructure wasn't in place to do the testing and to check it efficiently. So it's it, it's not really observing the advice, is it? Well, I, I understand that. And, you know, there are always opportunities where uh, things are changing. And I guess the government has tried to lift restrictions as soon as we can. And so from time to time, there will be hiccups around that, you know, in terms of some businesses perhaps that don't realise that they have to do certain things and, and they perhaps don't know where to go to get the information that they need. And we have been dealing with a couple of businesses here in the electorate office who, you know, need the information. Um, the government is moving as quickly as it can. Uh, we are looking to move through levels uh, and provide I guess, not just safety, because that's the paramount consideration from a public health perspective, but also an opportunity for people to be more um, more free than, than, you know, they have been in the past um, under alert levels. But let's not have any mistake around this. You know, we are in the midst of a, a global pandemic. And when we look around the country uh, here, the fact that in Palmerston North, I can go and get a coffee, um, people in Auckland can't, uh, you know, there are some parts of the world who who just don't have hospitality opportunities. And I think there's another message in that actually, Fraser, which is businesses, I think, and others and members of our community simply cannot, I think, expect to return to what it used to be. You know, um, there is a new norm. Um, And just listening to Minister Hipkins in the House this week, reflecting actually on uh, September the 11th and how in the immediate aftermath of that, we saw a huge rollout of security presences in airports. And, and to start with, people were quite hesitant about that, about what they could take on the plane, how they would manage that. Now, we all know now, or even in a, a pre-COVID time or opportunity, that airport security is just part and parcel. That We're all used to that. Um, and so it will be a, a new dynamic, but it will be the new norm. Uh, the, the, and I do want to touch on September the 11th later, but the, the difference there was that, that people's ability to travel was very rarely restricted. It was just uh, hindered uh, to a greater or lesser extent, whereas right now businesses are saying that with the caps of uh, that are in place for level two, it's not worth opening. It's not worth doing it. And there are also, I mean, I remember the first lockdown where the Regent Theatre obeyed the law, I wish to make that clear, but made itself something like four different premises in order to keep productions going, which to me, I, I was not comfortable with that. That is my opinion. I'm entitled to it and everyone else is entitled to theirs as well. I wasn't comfortable with that. That seemed like finding a loophole. Are people going to be finding loopholes that are potentially unsafe in order to try and make their business work? Well, I think there was some creativity and innovation there from that sector. Um, that, that's granted. But but I would push back a bit and say that, you know, um, 
Grant Robertson in the House, was it yesterday or the day before, took reference and referred to actually that one particular hospitality owner that the opposition were um, flouting as a concern for why they weren't opening uh, in the restrictions, actually believed that the restrictions were not tough enough. So what we're seeing is that there are various um, degrees of commentary out in the community. Um, what the government is interested in is providing opportunities that don't compromise the public safety of patrons or of business owners, but we need to understand that this is a completely different environment. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's really fortunate, actually, that people here in our local community can have some freedom and, and lack of restriction, more so than other people, particularly in Auckland at the moment, as we know, and, and our love and thoughts are with them because they're doing it really tough, they're doing it really hard, and, and no one will take that away from them. But elsewhere around the world, um, you know, we just don't have the opportunities that we see here in New Zealand. Indeed, uh, kia kaha tamaki makoro. We are here with uh, Memo Parimata o Papaioia Tangi Utakeri for the catch-up. Remember, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Uh, Tangi, you referenced public safety there. Uh, one final uh, item on the COVID agenda for this morning's catch-up is is around the safety. Uh, we saw the, the idiotic escape uh, through MIQ. But also uh, we find uh, 36 potential contacts with a woman who, I I, I wish to stress, there appears to be no malicious intent there. It was just the way it happened. But still, a woman went to Middlemore Hospital, um, stayed there for non-COVID related reasons, showed no symptoms, had a test, left, found out she was positive. And now we're having to do the whole contact tracing thing uh, all over again there. Um, and, And this in a place, I mean, Middlemore keeps getting the headlines. I mean, in 2018, the place was deemed unfit for purpose, pretty much, with all of the mould and bacteria. Um, are our facilities going to cut it? I mean, this the Labour-led government came on board saying that the health system was in a dire uh, state because the previous government hadn't maintained it. We're now putting all this pressure on for COVID, and that's just the hospitals. The MIQ facilities are starting to show some cracks as well. Yeah, look, I I think it's fair to say that, you know, there is an expectation from the government that, you know, our DHBs, even though we are transitioning to a a process of reform, um, and, you know, this time next year, the expectation is that we will be in that new structure and that new system. But for the time being, there still is an expectation that, you know, processes are are rigorous. And and I understand that the Minister of Health, you know, uh, reiterated that expectation yesterday, certainly heard that on the the radio yesterday. So I I get that there are a few little blips. Um, I think that that is supplemented by this push from the government and not just the government, but from people full stop in the community to ensure that, you know, you're doing the right thing in terms of turning your Bluetooth on and making sure that your QR codes are are scanned and, 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 you know, yes, that's mandatory now because when you touch on contact tracing, it provides an easy, quick solution and opportunity to ensure that we get on top of these outbreaks quickly. And so, yes, while, you know, processes, um, and, and I get that in terms of health and other opportunities that there is an element of strain at the moment. Um, it would be worse if we didn't have this breakdown, this um, lockdown opportunity and, and the virus contained. Um, so, yes, I get that there are some stresses, but there is still an expectation. And I, I certainly would expect that, you know, the DHB management and others who are currently in place at the moment are looking at that to ensure that, um, you know, those processes and, and they can learn from, from that opportunity.
I remember speaking to you last week, uh, I think from my dining room, if I remember rightly, um, <laughs> talking about uh, bang for buck when it came to MIQ. And the, at the moment, the, the argument for um, a purpose-built managed uh, isolation and quarantine facility was not as economically viable as the use of the motels and the other infrastructure that we have in place. Uh, since then, uh, Minister Hipkins has been saying that you know capacity is tight and actually there's just not enough. We're trying to bring new facilities online, but at the moment there's just not enough room for everyone that wants to come in. But also we're starting to see some commentary from, for example, Canterbury Chamber of Commerce CE Leanne Watson, also Chris Bishop in the opposition, who is the COVID spokesperson for the opposition, saying that, that that's, that's been miscalculated. Actually, economically, it would be more prudent to invest a few million in a purpose-built, managed isolation and quarantine facility as opposed to the potentially billions that the economy is losing through these extended lockdowns. Uh, how, what, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is not a new argument or proposal that people have put forward, and, and you'll reflect, I'm sure, on previous conversations that, that I've had in this space, that, you know, the, the move to use um, existing accommodation uh, environments was largely to ensure that we were able to stand something up quickly. Um, and while there was a call for, you know, a dedicated quarantine facility, that, that will always be an option, but it's not one that the government is looking to explore um, straight away. And you would have you've referred to Chris Hipkins making some comments around that. Yes, there is some strain, uh, and that's a given. I mean, here in the office just even yesterday, we're dealing with someone who wants to try and return to Palmerston North uh, because there is a relative who who is in well currently is in a, a medical situation that's rather unfortunate, um, and so you know the ability to access an MIQ bed um, is quite difficult at the moment because we have reserved some of that space for uh, for people in New Zealand uh, currently because of the Delta outbreak. Um, so I get that it is often a fluid and changing situation. But for the time being, um, the, the status quo does prevail. But as you referenced earlier with the, the aftermath of September 11th uh, and the, 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 the inconvenience that we all have to go through now with airport security and it becoming the norm, is MIQ going to be the norm in our society moving forward even when there isn't a pandemic because there's always going to be diseases? In which case, shouldn't we just get the thing built now? Well, I think that is a good question, uh, but th there is so much uncertainty at the moment. Our focus as a country is on increasing the vaccination rate and getting as many people uh, who want to, and we want that to be a really high number, um, vaccinated. Um, until we do that, there is still uncertainty. Yes, there will always be, and the modelers and analysts say that there will always be variants, but the way in which you tackle that is to ensure that you have a really strong public health message, but also that you have an extremely high vaccination rate in, in your community. And so, yes, we could go and actually build a, a quarantine facility that's purpose-built and then find out that it is a white elephant um, and to the expense of, of, of a lot in uh, at, the, at the moment, um, I get that there is cost currently for the current arrangements. We all accept that. Um, but there is still so much uncertainty and we are still um, in a fairly early stage globally. You know, uh, a lot of people, I think, think that this is a pandemic that is just going to um, end by the end of the year. People all around the world are saying, no, this is the new norm. 
Um, but there is still some uncertainty. And the approach that New Zealand has always taken is to reflect on the fact that we are isolated as a country. We are landlocked. You know, I mean, we're, we're surrounded by water, which is a beautiful thing at the moment, whereas other countries, um, that's not the case. So, look, I think there is still too much uncertainty to um, really rely on, on that as a, a operative suggestion. I, I take issue with the idea of it potentially being a white elephant, and it's not going to cost that much money in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you look at Transmission Gully, for crying out loud, and how much more money. That's, <laughs> that's the white elephant. In fact, if you built it alongside Transmission Gully, people wouldn't even notice it. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll withdraw my, my reference to my elephant then. Um, very quickly, Tangy, uh, your thoughts on James Shaw going to Scotland for the climate talks? Yeah, well, look, um, I'm obviously a member of the um, Environment Select Committee um, and the, the COP opportunity is a, a really big one for, um, for New Zealand, but also for, um, well, for the world, really. Um, it's something that has always been uh, on on the radar in more ways than one. Um, that's that's a matter for Minister Shaw to to take on. I'm I'm interested to ensure that we have a a presence, um, but a presence can mean a whole range of things. You know, we're doing things via Zoom at the moment. Um, RMA hearings via Zoom most of this weekend, next week. Uh, but that's a matter for Minister Shaw um, to to make. If you were Environment Minister, would you go? I'm not the Environment Minister, so it is not a matter for me to make that determination. Fair enough. Now, listen, uh, I I do apologise. We've got about eight minutes to go, but you did want to touch on some land transport funding, which is relevant to this electorate, whereas everything else has been national. So we should give you some time to talk to that. Yeah, thanks. Look, I know that um, earlier this week there were some announcements made to the National Land Transport Fund, um, and that's a government fund that um, prioritises its spending over the next three-year horizon. And so um, there'll be some projects that were confirmed in that that won't come as any surprise to our community, but it, it's pleasing to see that they're confirmed. Um, two of the big ones, obviously, are Te Ahua Tūranga, which is the construction of the of the Manawatu Gorge, um, well, Manawatu Tararua Highway replacement, and um, that's over 660 million um, confirmation of the O2 now, which is the four-lane highway from Otaki to north of Levin. Yep, that's outside of Palmerston North, but that will have huge implications in a positive way um, for our community, and that's over 800 million that's been confirmed um, for that. It means we can get to Transmission Gully quicker. (laughs) That's right. There you go. And Transmission Gully, of course, will be um, open uh, at some stage in the future. But the other two points uh, for Palmerston North are um, I think it's $2.7 million, maybe 2.6, um, for the Roberts Line intersection upgrade. So that's been a real local issue. Uh, with my council hat on, I remember going to a meeting at Cornerstone uh, School where that was discussed, and there have been many meetings since. And there had always been a conversation about the role that um, Waka Kotahi, uh, from the NZTA, would play in that. And so it's good to see that there is a contribution that's confirmed. And no doubt that will be worked through with um, with the council as well. Is that going to happen even if the Kiwi Rail Freight Hub uh, comes in and, and, and uses that land as well? Well, that's the, the issue with the Kiwi, um, Kiwi Rail is a, a longer term horizon, right? So, so that's the decisions that are being worked through at the moment with the hearings panel, as I understand. Um, but that's not something that is going to happen overnight, whereas this is a, a fix that's been called for for a number of years and is part of the next three-year 
package of funding. So um, even even in light of that, this is a, an upgrade for or an improvement to, to deal with safety and, and responding to community concerns. Um, any decision that Kiwi Rail might make as a result of the resource consent or the application that they're going through, um, that no doubt, if successful, will have implications for the rating network, but um, it will part and, be part and parcel of, of this uh, $2.7 million. The, the final thing I want to touch on is an additional $1.2 million for improved bus service infrastructure. So, you know, um, as a community, there's been quite a push from Horizons and the Parliament City Council in the active transport space. And so this will just be some supplementary um, funding to make some improvements to um, the bus services. So, so some good news locally, uh, but also regionally as well in that land transport space. So that that uh, money for the improved bus infrastructure, is that why Horizons are currently undergoing their submission process now? They've got more money, they want to spend it more efficiently with the, the new bus routes and timetables? No, I think this was a, a separate issue. It's, it is complementary and timing is good, but my understanding is that Horizons... Um, wanted to get some public consultation on a more effective and efficient bus service. Um, and I don't know, I certainly uh, submitted to that on, online. It was a nice, easy option. And it's good that the public can feed into that because, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, even my partner said, why why does Horizons do the buses? Is that not a city council thing? Well, it's actually been a historical arrangement here in Palmerston for quite some time that Horizons um, are responsible for public transport. Indeed. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left, Tangy. Uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but this weekend sees the 20th, good Lord, 20th anniversary of the September 11 uh, attacks uh, in New York. Obviously, the Twin Towers uh, coming down under horrific circumstances. The, the question I, I always uh, seem to remember being asked was, where were you when it happened? Exactly, and it's one of those moments that alongside, actually, you might disagree with me on this, but, um, you know, the death of Princess Diana. Oh, yes. We, we all, you know, know where we were at that time, at that, at, in terms of time and place. Um, yeah, look, I, was, I remember, actually, because um, I was still at high school at the time. No, was I? No, I wasn't. Um, I was at university, and my mother came in uh, early in the morning to say, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, turn on the TV. And so, yeah, and it was just to, to see those horrific um, scenes and just this week on the telly, seeing a lot of those, um, you know, stills being um, replayed, it, it really did remind us. I think all oh, actually we were um, twenty years ago. And uh, I was, I'd, I'd literally just come off a shift at Century FM in Salford Keys in Manchester and I got home, turned on the, the telly and uh, realised that if I'd been still at work, uh, it would have been chaos. I'd just managed yeah. to, to sort of get out in the nick of time, really, because I, really, I was a young tech op at the time. The professionals had taken over, so it was probably a good thing. Um, we were all much younger. Yeah, tell, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but the effects of this are, are still being felt now. I mean, it's, it's somewhat ironic that Afghanistan is still in the news uh, for not dissimilar reasons. Uh, and people, the, the the death toll from September the 11th, I heard on uh, RNZ this morning, continues to rise as people that were breathing in toxic fumes and gases uh, at the time, some of the first responders, the, the, it's still being felt today. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, you know, there unfortunately are, are many events uh, in the global history uh, where, you know, the, the impact is still um, with people today and, and in a physical sense, but also in an emotional 
um, sense as well. And so just reflecting on some of those images that we have all seen over the, the last week or so, and, you know, that thick um, smoke, dense, of, of matter that's in the, the air and then subsequently learning what that actually was has obviously led to significant health implications for people um, even 20 years on. So, yes, one of those life-changing events for the world um, and, you know, we reflected briefly on airport security. That's just one aspect. Um, but to acknowledge this 20 years on um, is, a, is a very much a, a sombre reminder to us all. Indeed. Tangi Utakere, I understand you have a select committee at 9am, so you've got about 30 seconds to get to that. Thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning. Thank you, Fraser. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. Keep safe and be kind to each other. There we go. Tangi Utakere, Mema Oparimata Opapaioya for uh, the catch-up this morning. If you'd like to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Hopefully we'll be here on Monday with Jimmy Ellingham from the Manawatu Standard, uh, so do join us then. Bye for now. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.